So tonight I'd like to contemplate the third aspect of the path, which is the territory of wisdom, the Pali word panya, and Sanskrit prajna. It's wise, wisely reflecting, uh, con- um, activating this uh, aspect of uh, wise contemplation, um, building on the factors of the path that we've been cultivating, which is the the gatheredness and the focusing and the calming meditation of the samatha, which means a stilling of the thinking mind and samadhi, which is sort of to gather together, to infuse through the body's physical, mental, emotional body, suffusing awareness and bringing awareness and mindful contemplation to, to body, body breath uh, for the sake of this steadying and this calming and this focusing, putting to one side the concerns and the longings and the disappointment and the grief for the world, for now, for the sake of st- stabilizing and centering here within our present moment experience. So this cultivation of this middle part of the path, samadhi, is what enables the strength of the awareness of the mind of attention to contemplate our actual experience, to contemplate reality, to contemplate what is arising here and now, and to investigate that for the sake of liberating the mind, the heart, from unnecessary suffering, or dukkha, as Dara was talking to last night. So to be able to see with clarity is a very um, wonderful thing, not to be caught up in our assumptions and the projections of the mind and the way that we tend to filter every experience through our conditioning. And so we don't really see accurately either the internal experience or the external experience. But we often just are in relationship to the conditioned projections of the mind that are uninvestigated. The great Indian realized being, Nisagadatta, contemporary, said to use the mind, to know the mind, is the best preparation for going beyond the mind. To use mind to know mind is the best preparation for going beyond. To go beyond that which is known and which is cognized. Ajahn Tate, a forester master, said that the activity of meditation is to discern the difference between mind and the content of mind. To begin to notice there's that which is moving and then that which is just seeing what is moving, noticing, aware of. So in the last uh, few days we've been contemplating the activity of mind a lot. We haven't been able to avoid it. It's been a, a lot of different experiences that we've all gone through, a lot of different worlds and narratives that populates our sense of ourselves and the sense of our world. 
Um, and then we've been able to contemplate that without much distraction, to really just see how the thoughts move, the feelings, the different states that we go through, how changeable that is. Uh, and to be able to really also recognize, so Dara pointed to the essential teaching of the Buddha, the core teaching, uh, one of the most uh, profound teachings, uh, many profound teachings, but certainly one that's made a lot of, which is to contemplate, to begin to be able to contemplate the experience of dukkha, for example, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, agitation, without getting caught up in it, without getting reactive to the experience, without repressing it, without projecting it out and saying, well, it's your fault that I'm experiencing this, or there's something wrong with me inherently I'm, uh, because I'm experiencing suffering and struggle because I'm somehow unworthy or I'm bad in some way, or repressing it, I don't want to deal with this, or distracting ourselves from the experience of dukkha. There's many different ways that we're out of relationship with this fundamental ongoing experience that we all have every day. Uh, Some form of agitation, some taste of unsatisfactoriness from the most coarse experience of dukkha to the most subtle experience. This this, um, is part of the activity of mind, that which is generating dukkha. The mind generates dukkha. As Darar is pointing out, there's uh, spoken about three kinds of dukkha, what's sometimes called dukkha dukkha, which is just the suffering that comes from conditioned existence that you can't really do a lot about. When you're embodied, the body's going to be susceptible to sickness, to feeling cold, to feeling too hot, to feeling hunger, uh, to feeling um, the, the experience of aging, um, death. These are the, the experiences of dukkha that are inherent within conditioned conditionality. Um, and, and yet we can experience pain, we can experience pain in our meditation as pain or that which is difficult to be with. Another translation of dukkha is that which is difficult to bear. We can do that without generating suffering. Or there's what uh, also um, Duraf referred to as uh, dukkha viparinama, which means the the dukkha of the cessation, particularly of the pleasant, that things are ceasing, things are changing. There's a sort of poignancy in that. There's a, there's a, a feeling of, of just the sheer loss, that, that sense of the, something that was there, that was pleasant for us, and then seeing it fade and change. That's a, sometimes a, a very coarse sense of dukkha, but it can also be a subtle sense, but that's also inherent within the conditioned experience of the changeability of circumstances and conditions. They come into be, the phenomena arises, has a shape and a form, and then it changes. It's inherent within all conditions. And the dukkha that the Buddha talked about in terms of freeing ourselves from dukkha, he wasn't saying we'll free ourselves from pain or from the conditionality of our experience, what you call it, what's called dukkha sankara, or the dukkha of the avijja, or the 
not seeing clearly of the mind, the, the ignorance of the mind, not understanding the nature of how things are, we generate this experience all the time of suffering and struggle. For example, a very simple thing of not really accepting that things change uh, or that, that we can't control everything. And the mind starts to, to generate uh, stress and anxiety and dukkha, which can be alleviated as we start to contemplate the reality, for example, of changeability and come to terms with that. This uh, dukkha of Sankara dukkha, the Buddha, when he actually named the different sources of dukkha, he would say, well, these, there are these inherent dukkhas, like birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, separation from the loved is dukkha, being together with the unloved is dukkha, not getting what you want is dukkha, getting what you don't want is dukkha. <laughs> Basically, sorrow, lamentation, pain and despair, these are all forms of dukkha. And I know we've all experienced some iteration of that through this last few days because many people have spoken about it in, in our small groups. Uh, these are the territories that we, that we move through um, that are inherent within our human experience. And then we generate on top of that um, an agitation. Shouldn't be like this, should be different. Or more subtly, the Buddha talked about the subtle aspect of dukkha when it comes to this avidya of the mind not seeing clearly is the five focuses of the grasping mind. This is how it's classically put. Dukkha arises from the five focuses of the grasping mind. That the, the mind not knowing its true nature, the mind doesn't understand its true nature as primordial awareness, unformed awareness, doesn't really taste and know the depth of this unformed, unoriginated, pure being awareness, has a tendency to want to find an identity sort of moves out into form to identify and to find a shape and a being and a, a sense of belonging and placement. This is the activity of mind. And this is called the activity of sankhara, which means making a pattern. Or it's that, or generated from a volitional tendency of the mind. This is quite a subtle territory, but we can contemplate this territory and this is the activity of wisdom to contemplate this sankharic making, the making of patternings, the creations of the mind. Is this, this not being able to perhaps withstand the unformed nature of being just present and aware. There's this sort of seeking and moving subtly volition, a tendency to, to look and to move towards something maybe a thought form, maybe a feeling, maybe a memory, maybe a circumstance, maybe a project, maybe scanning for someone, something to land, somewhere to land. And this is our, the perpetual activity of the unawakened mind. It's always looking for a home and finding a home fundamentally in that which is already subject to change. 
is the nature of conditioned realm. And therefore, inherent wherever we land, however beautiful and wonderful it is, and it's not to say that the that we, you know, that's part of our human journey, but inherent in that, whatever is already born are the seeds of that which is going to change and shift and pass away. So it's this activity that we can contemplate through this wise awareness of the mind, of the the mind using this fundamental nature of awareness and applying it to contemplate this activity of the grasping of the mind, of looking for a shape, looking for a form. In this activity of the um, moving and, and looking and f- wanting to uh, find uh, a placement for ourselves, a way of being, a, a way of describing ourselves to ourselves. Who am I? What am I? Where do I belong? Why am I here? Where did I come from? Where am I going to? These kind of, really all these questions that fundamentally point to the fact that there's this great uncertainty underneath our experience. An uncertainty that's very hard for us to actually just stay naked in, in, the, in the face-off. So we have to have some kind of narrative and explanation for ourselves. And we tell ourselves that endlessly. We tell each other <laughs> our stories. And that's actually very important psychologically, cognitively. But meditatively, we can actually really explore that. Is this really real? Is this really true? Is it really lasting? So this this activity is being generated all the time from the mind not knowing its own nature, not tolerating the fundamental naked state of awareness. And so it's not that often what we experience and how the mind projects, it's like someone is doing the dukkha to us. And it's not to say that we can't receive pain from each other and that we, you know, personally and collectively... But the way that we generate this activity of suffering and discontent through this activity of the not seeing clearly the nature of reality, the nature of mind, and not seeing the nature of the creations of the mind, it's that that the Buddha said, that dukkha that we can alleviate fully through wise awareness, through the founding of the contemplation of wisdom, which is the activity of mindfulness. Mindfulness that's married with, often mindfulness is described as a sort of a placing of attention in a certain way, non-judgment, open awareness, reflecting on experience. Mindfulness is always coupled, often coupled with other factors in this inner, as a support for the, the cultivation of wisdom, sati, Sati Panya, Sati Sampajanya, Sati Sampajanya, Sati Sampajanya means mindfulness and wise contemplation. Uh, for example, if you were driving a car, you'd be sort of driving along, you feel your hands on the wheel, your butt in the seat, you can say, I'm really, really mindful, I'm really, really concentrated, I'm really, really focused, 
but you could drive into a tree if you don't have sampajanya. You say, well, what's the problem? I was really mindful. I was aware of the sensations in the body. I was aware of touching the wheel. I was fully present. But sampajanya is a, is a global awareness that's informing your mindfulness, what context you're in, what's happening, what's arising, what's being felt, what's the experience. So, so to, to, yes, to bring attention, but then to have a, a global awareness that can reflect, that's the nature of awareness, that is, is that it's reflective. It can reflect on our experiences. We're not just creatures of habit. If it wasn't for that capacity, then we would just be pushed along by the momentum of the mind. We'd have no choice. We'd have no awakening factor. We'd have no ability to see our patternings and to free ourselves from the prisons of the mind. Or sometimes mindfulness is coupled with the term yoni so manisakara. It just gives you a sense for the practice of cultivating wisdom. Yoni so manisakara literally means, yoni, yoni means womb. Sometimes in the old translation of Pali, it's translated as primordial matrix. It's a, it's a way of talking about awareness, fundamental nature of awareness. It's like a womb, womb of creation. And the manis, mani is the, manas is the, is the, is the mind. Sikara is to, to do or to make, to put the, the activity of the mind into the womb of awareness. So this is another way of talking about the activity of mindfulness or meditation. That what is arising as construct, as feeling, as perception, as volition, as longing, as fear, as anxiety, as pleasure and pain and like and dislike, all of these variable experiences are that which can be contemplated not to be feared, not to be avoided, not to be repressed, not to be identified with and pulled along with, but to be able to be contemplated through particular kinds of lenses that help us see the nature of conditions. So one lens that the the Buddha talked about, he said, if you look at a construct, a condition or a state of mind, which in which a state of mind includes the thought, narrative, feeling, tone, sensation, the sense of self, the sense of a whole um, feeling about me and world. All of this is a, a creation that emerges and is a, and is a state. Usually, it's for us, it's reality. This is reality, and and you know if, you know we just need a little bit of discernment to realize that the realities that the mind creates are kind of contradictory. They're you know um, they're not very um, cohesive. Um, they're full of holes, full of discrepancies, <laughs> um, f- full of contra- contradictory ex- um, statements and experiences. To realize that you know these states of mind that we t- that we take to be ourselves aren't really that sane <laughs> or stable a lot of the time you know um, or it's a struggle to find that coherency and it is important to find coherency but uh, you know just cutting into a subtler and deeper level 
the Buddha talked about that each construct, each state, each condition has these elements to them, what he called the five skandhas. I'm sorry to bring a list in, but they are sometimes helpful and you don't have to remember them. They can just be, a, they're just a template to, to reflect that every moment of experience has these five aspects. First being rupa, which means form. You know, the shape, the form, bodies, we can see forms of the room. The second being vedana, content of, of feeling. And, and that's also very powerful. That, that constitutes a, a very powerful part of our experience of who we are and what this world is. It's what we feel it to be what we see it to be through form, what we feel it to be. The third is sanya or perception, how we perceive our experience. We perceive someone and we have a name and a word and then perhaps a feeling tone and a form. And we perceive our sense of self in the same way. Um, we think of uh, London or we think of Delhi or we think of Bangkok or we think of Johannesburg or we think of New York. And, you know, we have a perception about that. It's not really the real experience of being there. And even when we're there in those cities, um, even what we experience is often just the perception and momentary experience, sensory experiences. And we say, this is New York, but what is it? It's a moment of like sound and smell and taste and touch and sensory perception. You know, I'm in New York, you know, you could be actually anywhere really, but in any city, you know, they're all pretty, but you know, there is a f particularity. There's this perception, feeling, form, these are very powerful constructs. Sankara, the fourth one, which means it begins to create a whole shape, a patterning. You know, there's a sort of like a, it's like if the mind was like a, a, a blank computer screen or a blank program or a blank hard disk and then, a, and then some program comes in and it starts to create a shape or a patterning or a form. This is the construct, the, con the condition. This is a skanda. And the, the, uh, the last one is called vinyana, which means what brings all of that into alive for us is this moments of conscious experience, sensory conscious experience. That, that flickers very fast, a moment of the experience of form, perception, feeling, um, has a moment of knowing, you know, there's a sense of me knowing the sense of the experience, the subject-object, moment by moment. There's me experiencing this thing, me experiencing this thing, me experiencing this thing, dependent on a, a consciousness that's arising around the sense of me thinking, a thought. So there's a thought, when there's a thought, there's a sense of a me that's thinking that. And then we generate this sense of a continual me, a continual me that's experiencing this, that's thinking that, that's having that feeling and having this state and, and suffering from that emotion and thinking about going there and remembering that over there. But actually if we you know, in the summertime samadhi, as the as the con as we slow down and slow down, the mind slows down the constructs, and we're not just so driven along that pathway. We start to actually perhaps see there's some gaps in that. You know, th there's an idea that th there's a continual me that has a consistency. We realize it's a, a co-arising with experience, with moments of 
of, of perception, moments of feeling, moments of cognition, moments of memory, uh, moments of familiarity, moments of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, that there, there's a sort of co-arising that, that supports the sense of, a, of an experience of an internal me. So when the Buddha said that when we actually contemplate this through the eye of wisdom, you know, if we, if we think about it through the everyday mind, then that's what the currency of our moving through the world. And that's very important that we have that. And I can sit here and say what my name is and who I am and where I am right now. Um, but that's not the only plane of reality. <laughs> that's what's sometimes called conventional reality, what we all agree on. We make some agreement this is reasonably real. Um, but if we, you know, if we actually contemplate and that slows down through the eye of wisdom, the, the Buddha said, it's a bit like if you say um, the river Ganges. You know, you have an idea, some of us might have been there, you might have sat on the river Ganges and drank some chai, you, you know where it is, it's from Calcutta, it goes up into the Himalayas and so on, or the other way. Um, that if you went and said, okay, the river Ganges, I'm going to go and get hold of the river Ganges and you went up to the river Ganges and you got hold of it, it would just go through your fingers, like water goes through your fingers. You can't grasp the river Ganges and yet it's this huge thing. And he said in the same way, if you the sense of self, it's real enough. It's not to deny the reality of the continuity in the river of self, the flow of self, <coughs> generated from these 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 momentary um, uh, identification with these momentary experiences of the senses and so on. But if you actually went to try and uh, pick up what is this self actually, he said it would be like that river Ganges, it would flow through your fingers. You can't really grasp not only the self but even the moment. There's nothing that you can really sort of capture without it sort of turning into something ephemeral. And so this is why sometimes it's said that, you know, this, this is real enough here, but it also has a dreamlike quality. It's just another dreamlike experience. We had a dream at night, and that was a dream. We wake up and we say, this is, this is real life. But in a certain way, it also has this, it's real, but it has, it's dreamlike because it has an ephemerality about it. It means that, you know, in a moment, we'll all be going off to our room and this would have faded, and we'd f probably f forgotten what I've said, and <laughs> and I would have forgotten what I've said, and you know we have a few words and perceptions, um, but here and now, you know, it seems real enough. But then everything has this nature. So when we can, can come down into the moment of our experience, you realise there's there's nothing really to grasp. There's nothing really to hold. And so it's not that we have to let go in a certain way. Um, we have to just recognize there's nothing to hold. Yeah. That there's, there's, you know, that we don't have to grasp so hard at the moments of our experience. We don't have to con try and control so much. Yes, sometimes we have to strategize and to act, be active in the world. There's these elements of control and and um, aiming for a goal and all of the things that we know that we have to do to bring about some happening. But when we're in that mode all the time, 
then we just really are connected and married into this experience, even at a very subtle level of dukkha. And that's fine, you know, we, we, we experience dukkha, but we then we experience the price of dukkha, stress and frustration and overwhelm. But we can actually do all of that and actually at the subtler level learn to practice from the place of wisdom a way of being where we're not grasping so much or we're able to let go. We don't always have to pick up and hold. We can relax and let things flow and to move into this more contemplative awareness as a natural state of our being. And this is really where we start to recognize that there's not always suffering and dukkha. In the third noble truth, uh, there is that which is non-dukkha. In fact, there's a lot of non-dukkha. We just don't see it. And so the Buddha said, this isn't something we attain, it's something we realize, it's something we see, it's something we turn to. We realize that the fundamental nature of this moment and this awareness and this quality of being, if the mind is not caught in wanting and not wanting, I want something else and I don't want this, which it usually is, but if we recognize that pattern and unhook from it and just relax, you realize actually it's okay. Even if there's difficulty, there can always be, there can also be an unidentified way of releasing from the struggle. It's a, in, a, in a way, it's, it's a very deep acceptance of how it is. And it's very difficult to say that because they say, well, what about the world? You know, we've got to get out there and fix it. And you know that I talk about that a lot. And, you know, and sometimes I apologize if that's difficult to hear. Um, but, yeah, and it's true. I'm very, very um, into fixing everything. But, <laughs> and I'm very exhausted by my tendency to try and, you know, save the world from itself. I mean, how grandiose can you get? But it's, but it's like, the, where do we come from? Do we come from this deep wisdom? Or do we you know, come from our agendas that are really not in touch with a deeper, you know, when we talk about wisdom, when we start to let go, we're letting go into something. We're not just letting go into a, you know, becoming a sort of like a cold cucumber or, or a stone that doesn't feel, that isn't sensitive, that isn't awake, that isn't intelligent that isn't responsive. We're we're letting go into this, in the third noble truth, we're letting go into what's called, the third truth is called niroda, the recognition, the contemplation of niroda. Niroda, nibbana, nibida, these words. Uh, Nibida is a precursor to niroda, nibbana. Nibida means dispassion. There almost has to be a real exhaustion with the suffering. It's almost like, how much do you really need to suffer before one's willing to say, let's do something about this? You know, how much do we really, uh, you know, need to have so many experiences, so many sensory experiences? How much do we really need to own? How many empires do we really need to build um, before we recognize that 
there is, uh, there is a sort of sense of weariness about it all. And, th- and there's a particular word for that in the Buddhist map of awakening. And it's a very important awakening place to come to. It's this experience of weariness, world re- weariness or dispassion. You know, in, the, in, our, in our contemporary society, you feel that and you say, well, no, no, go shopping or, you know, cheer up. You know, in England, they go, cheer up, love. Cheer up, duckies. Yeah. <laughs> I used to hate that. Anyway, <laughs> I think I went round when I was young looking really miserable most of the time because people were always saying that to me. Cheer up, love. Might never happen. So, <laughs> so but this, this uh, it's actually in, in the Thai understanding, it's considered spiritual maturity to come to the place of dispassion and weariness and feeling like I've had enough. You know, there's a mind beginning to turn from that fevered state, from that burning that happens when the, the mind is burning with fever, with desire and endless wanting, longing, endless grief and suffering. And then the niroda is the contemplation of the cessation, the letting go, the non-grasping, the letting things be, the deep acceptance, it literally means, uh, ni means not, and rhoda means prison. It means not being in the prison of the mind, not being in the prison of the manufacturing of desires and being pushed along by that. To be able, the wise reflection, the yoni so manisakara, taking into the womb of our contemplation desire, even a subtle desire, I want to go and get a cup of tea, and to contemplate that and say, well, do I really need that? Do I really have to? Because when we don't actually contemplate desire and have some choice around that, we're just driven by it. And it's just very exhausting. And it's also consuming everything in its wake. So a moment of being able to see this is just desire, this is just aversion, and releasing from that already we begin to touch into an underlying, unmoving dimension of our experience, that which just is, doesn't need to go somewhere, doesn't need to push anything away. So this niroda is, is, is the beginning of letting be, letting go, accepting, allowing everything to be just as it is everyone to be just as they are. It doesn't mean to say that one might not struggle against that or, or challenge, but at a deep level to put it down, to put the burden down. As Ajahn Chah once said to one of the Western disciples when he was in hospital and suffering because he would, he'd had knee operations and his legs were in plaster and he was, you know, as a monk, he was like, I won't be able to sit cross-legged and he was making a lot of suffering about it. And Ajahn Chah came to see him and he said, how are you? And he said, Lung poor, venerable father, it shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't be like this. And Ajahn Chah bent over and he said, if it shouldn't be like this, it wouldn't be like this. <laughs> you know, how many, it shouldn't be like this. You know, this world should not be like this. And I agree with that. You know. 
<laughs> you know, that means I'm going to suffer a lot. Yeah, and I suffer a lot. You know, it is like this. It's always been like this. It always will be like this. There's always going to be enormous struggle, enormous forces of destruction and hate and violence, and enormous forces of love and compassion and aspiration. You know, crashing together, creating this friction. So this is how it is. So the nib- nibbana is really a relinquishment of the struggle. It's a moments of deeply allowing everything to be as it is, the unsatisfactory parts of our life, the whole schmoggish board of stuff, you know, that's, uh, that's really irritating us, that's difficult to be with, you know, the, the illness, the death, the conflicts, just softening, softening the body around it, softening deeply into this non-struggle. So this, this, um, in this way, there's still the karmic wheels are still turning, there's still momentum happening, but we don't necessarily have to just always be pulled along by that momentum. If we engage, then we can engage from discernment, from choice, from compassion, and clarity, and then we can disengage. You know, where, where are we engaging from? But to know that first is really, you know, that's why the Buddha taught this teaching of the road into non-suffering through suffering is extremely profound contemplation. So notice actually to contemplate, to use wisdom to notice when there's non-suffering, not just when there's suffering. Ajahn Mahabua said, when dukkha stops, nothing remains. All that remains is entirely pure awareness. This is the purity of mind. If you want, you can call it Nibbana. Ajahn Chah said, you can call it what you like, it's just a name. You know, Nibbana is just a word. You can make a big deal out of that word. You know, the thing is to taste, as Ajahn Charles say, people say, what's Nibbana? He said, well, what's a banana? You know, if you want to know what a banana is, peel it and eat it. <coughs> if you want to know what a banana is, stop struggling and, and relax, open, relinquish the dukkha of the mind. Notice your fundamental nature of peacefulness here and now. It's always here and now. Notice it's always here and now. It's always here. It's not something that you have to attain or get or deserve. You know, if I sit 3,000 retreats and do 200 bowing practices and go around Mount Kailash, you know, 30 times on my knees, I, I, I might rack up enough points, or you might, and it's not to undervalue those practices, actually, as building Barami and all the rest, but Nibbana's here and now. You can, you know, many of the Buddha's disciples had, like Anagunamala, a serial killer, you know, he had a lot of karma to work through, but he still could realize Nibbana. You know, so to recognize the fundamental nature of the presence of awareness here and now, the peaceful non-becoming, the natural state of being, the non-agitated, what's 
the similes to give us a, a, a feeling, the unformed, the taintless, the end, the other shore, the subtle, the ever-present, the invisible, the deathless, safety, marvelous, freedom, independence, the shelter, the beyond, Nibbana. Ironically, it's, it's most, our most natural state. This is why they say in Zen, you know, it's like looking around the world for the jewel that's already in your forehead. And looking, you know, that, so that's another sankara, looking for what's already here. This taste, moments of tasting, maybe in little ways, maybe it's not stabilized, unshakable. Moments of just tasting even a little piece. Moments of noticing that which is not being created. This, uh, in the way of awakening, this is talked about as entering the stream of the Dharma. One begins to recognize that awakening, that liberation, is not really delivered from the outside, but is self-arising from within. And therefore, once one recognizes that, one has a sense for the path and the way of practice that becomes increasingly confident, one becomes increasingly confident in that. One understands that there may be a taste, but there's still the forces of the hindrances that are operating, but one has an understanding of the territory. The confusion begins to lift. And so this one begins to see through the very strong identification with the sense of self, sense of the body, as being a you know lasting home that we're going to find our permanent resting in within one can begin to inquire and to to see into the nature of what we call ourselves one sees beyond doubt the mind always caught up in thinking trying to think our way th- into an experience of peace and has moments of seeing this is just thinking rather than trying to find the right answer. One sees through the adherence to endless rites and rituals. This means that this idea that we have to do something to get to what is already here. And it's not to say that rites and rituals aren't important, that adherence to tradition isn't important and part of what supports our spiritual life, but it's this deep attachment to feeling that that in and of itself, even the keeping of precepts that 
are imposed from the outside or morals will somehow magically transform us. It will transform us, but this deeper realization has to arise from the faculty of of wisdom, of wisely seeing, directly seeing the nature of reality. So it's said that when one is entered the stream of the Dharma, someone was asking about how do we know um, what are the what are the sort of fruits of that? And it's said that one begins to ab- abandon envy. One begins to abandon hypocrisy. One begins to abandon denigration and domineering, fraud and lies. There are certain activities that cannot happen anymore. You know, there's a very acute sense of being authentic, of being true to your deeper being and to each other. There's a deep sense of kinship rather than dominating over. There's a deep sense of we're here together, supporting each other rather than endlessly competing. So in the Sanskrit word for wisdom, because this is the faculty that we're cultivating through mindful investigation, mindful contemplation, keep inquiring into these mechanisms of identification with the moments of form, feeling, perception, feeling, thinking, keep looking, keep investigating. So the Sanskrit word for that is prajna, which also gives us a feeling for what is this? Where does this insight take us to? Where, where does wisdom really take us to? Where are we going when we let go? <laughs> are we just going to let go and to become a sort of melted jelly on the floor? You know, <laughs> not able to really respond, not able to engage. You know, in some ways, um, we're not, we don't really want peace. We're really addicted to drama. You know, we're really addicted to these enormous stories that we that we live through and that we are constantly traumatizing ourselves around. You know, and, and are fascinated by. And they're great. I mean, I love movies. I really, really do. Yeah, I really love the stories, and they're important. Stories are very important. But there's also, you know, we have to really recognize that peace is an acquired taste. We have to really develop a a taste for the still, for the non-becoming, for the non-dramatic, for the profoundly ordinary. In the prajna, the word prajna, pra means before, and jnya, which is connected with gnosis, means knowledge or knowing. So it has this idea of before you even know something as an object to you before you name something through language, before you put something out there as outside of yourself, before you create a me in here and a world out there, there is this fundamental knowing that's naked. And that naked knowing is not creating a split, It's it's actually All things are resident in that awareness. All things are resident in that awareness. 
all the different variations of conscious consciousness and conscious manifestation, all phenomena, all beings, all part of the one seamless whole. And they're known, not so much, they know can be known as an object through the cognitive mind, the objectifying mind, it's called the, um, that which goes out and names and, uh, and differentiates. But it also can be known when Kuan Yin talks about her enlightenment in the Shurangama Sutra, she talks about suddenly in her moment of awakening, her mind was identical with all the Buddhas and identical with all living beings. There's no split. All beings are resident in this one awareness. And that's why uh, Dogen could say, enlightenment is the intimacy of all things. It's not so much out there anymore. We're resonant and connected and deeply within a web of coexistence and co-interdependence with all things. And yet there's also a vastness beyond that. So Nisargadatta again, he says, a beautiful thing. He says, the knower comes and goes with the known and is transient. The knower comes with the known and is transient. But that which knows, it does not know, which is free from memory and anticipation is timeless. But that which knows it does not know, which is free from memory and anticipation, is timeless. That which knows, that that pure knowing is an act of not knowing. It's a sort of stripping away of all the ways that we assume we know ourselves, know each other, know this world, all the views, all the perceptions, all of the the ways that we filter our experience, all the ways that we name everything, and we assume because we have a name that we know it, that we have a depth of real prajna, real wisdom. But the prajna, the, the depth of the deeper knowing, deeper wisdom, that takes us into this depth of intimacy of all things, has a deep sense of real nakedness about it. It's like meeting each moment with not having to just quickly go to a cognitive shape and a creation around what's happening. But to be willing to receive the experience through direct awareness. And that's another way of knowing. And knowing that's why it's called prajna, or wisdom, is because that way of knowing is has a deep intelligence within it that's connected with the whole web of life. So the information and the arising of response from the prajna paramita is perfectly, authentically, appropriately resonant with what needs to manifest. And the moments that we experience ourselves manifesting from that place, it's very liberating. And it doesn't have to be some big project, some big leap. This is, because this is our natural state we're talking about. We just don't recognize our natural state as that open, that unconstructed, that naked. 
I mean, we do feel it and then we feel socially awkward. Oh, I better say something quick. Because <laughs> I don't really know what's going on. <laughs> and I don't know what to say. <laughs> but actually, that's the moment to catch. And to really, like, explore that. And to trust it. It's learning. When we talk about the deeper refuge, it's learning to trust the very simple act of being present and open and listening. And from that place, what can arise can be completely spontaneous, unconstructed. We might never have thought of that response in a million years, and yet it was, came and it was, so, it was so appropriate for the moment. Even the Buddha would say, sometimes he'd give a Dharma talk, and he'd say to Sariputra, have you heard that before? And Sariputra would say, no, and he said, well, neither have I. <laughs> <laughs> That's really prajna operating, and it's not self. Then it's not about the construct of the self. It's arising from the living dharma, Sajjan Chah would call the living dharma. This is what we're taking refuge in. This is what we're, what he was, what Ajahn Chah would say, what is the goal of what this practice is? And one way he would articulate that is being dharma, being the dharma. Not just knowing about the dharma, not just speaking about the dharma, not just studying and reading about the dharma, not even just practicing about the dharma, but being dharma. And to do that, it's a risk. We have to take a leap. We have to be willing to be open, to keep stripping away our known worlds, our strategies, to keep facing and being in each moment open, present, connecting to the non-struggle, listening, accepting, resonating with, until we start to feel that sense of arising authentically in response to what is needed. And to live from that place is to live, to be supported by the stream of the Dharma. We don't know what will happen, but we trust it. We trust that whatever will happen will have the capacity to meet it, because that's one of the gifts that the Dharma brings to us. It's inherent, it's the gift inherent within our own heart, this heart, this mind, is like a diamond. It reflects, but it can't be cut. It can cut through and see clearly, it can be clear, but it can't be demolished. It's stainless. It's indestructible. It's immovable. It's invincible. Timeless. Ever-present. Undying. Ever-responsive. Ever-still. This is our nature. And it's not ours to own, but it's ours natural abiding, the most natural. Everything else, the constructs of dukkha, they're not really that ultimately natural to us. They're just what we contemplate and transform through our mindful awareness. Heal, 
and liberate. Ajahn Chah said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool, and you will see clearly the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but your heart will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.